Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It's Friday, January 22. I'm Tom Tilly, joined by Jan Fran. And Jan, COVID's made people a lot more aware of the nature available in their neighbourhoods. Yeah, it has indeed. And on The Briefing today, we're going to take a look at the push to turn golf courses into public parks. I think that it's a good idea to reconsider the use of public land every couple of decades or maybe even every 100 years, which is what we're considering here. Golf courses would be a great place for a picnic, wouldn't they? They would. And look, this is something that was on the table pre-COVID, but COVID has just given it a push in that direction a little bit further. So we'll see what happens. All right, that's in just a moment. First, here are the big news stories of the day. Cricket Australia is standing by its decision to drop any reference to Australia Day for its Big Bash games on January 26th. This is despite copping heat from the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison. Well, it's not cricket. That would be my reaction. Um, Look, I think Australian cricket fans would like to see Cricket Australia focus a lot more on cricket and a lot less on politics. Yeah, the decisions also divided the BBL teams with the Melbourne Stars saying they'll continue to promote the match as the Australia Day blockbuster, while their opponents, the Sydney Sixers, will just refer to the day as January 26. Yeah, this move was recommended by Cricket Australia's First Nations Advisory Committee, um, essentially to make the game as inclusive as possible because January 26 marks the day when the First Fleet arrived in Sydney Harbour, um, the start of colonisation, and it is a day of mourning for many people in this country. Yeah, so here's a bit more of what Scott Morrison said because he's come under fire for his comments as well. You know, when those 12 ships turned up in Sydney all those years ago. It wasn't a particularly flash day for the people on, on, on those vessels either. Yeah, so those comments have angered a lot of people. Northern Territory Treaty Commissioner and former Australian of the Year Mick Dodson told the ABC he was appalled. It's a very selfish comment. He seems to have a total lack of empathy of the impact of the British coming to Australia on Aboriginal people. There's no empathy there at all. It's all about self-praise and aggrandisement of white fella colonisation. Yeah, it did seem like the Prime Minister really underplayed the real impact of the arrival of the British on Indigenous Australians, essentially comparing the discomfort of the British sailors with the beginning of the destruction of one of the oldest living cultures in the world. Yeah. Even though it is offensive to a lot of people, I imagine the Prime Minister has looked at the polling on this and he knows that the majority of Australians want to keep Australia Day on January 26. I mean, that may be the case, but protests have been growing steadily over the last few years. Um, And Cricket Australia is not by any means the only organisation to have to contend with this. I mean, we saw, you know, Triple J was the big one changing the date of the hottest 100 from Australia Day. And they did that by saying that they polled, you know, 65,000 people and the majority said that they wanted it changed. Well, they were younger people and that goes to the point, the, the polling from the ANU Uh, I was referring to before, also showed that younger Australians are much more inclined to change the date. And so maybe this is a question that we're going to continue to see pop up over the next few years for sure. I mean, Neighbours is tackling the Australia Day, change the date situation. Ramsey Street. Ramsey Street in an episode next week. So it's something that I think is really part of the cultural fabric now and I think is going to be for many years to come. Newly appointed US President Joe Biden has spent his first day in the top job reversing many of Donald Trump's signature policies. So he signed 15 executive orders. Um, These are directives from the president that basically require no approval from US Congress to come into force. Um, Among them, making masks mandatory in all federal buildings, uh, stopping a fund to build a wall on the Mexican border. That was one of Donald Trump's major promises there when he came into power. 
and overturning the so-called Muslim ban, uh, which limits immigration from seven majority Muslim countries to the US. Yeah, he also joined the World Health Organization. And overnight, America's top health expert, Dr. Anthony Fauci, told the WHO America is back and ready to help with the fight against COVID. The US also rejoined the Paris Climate Agreement. Um, This is a move that the Australian Climate Council's Amanda McKenzie says will actually put a bit of pressure on Australia to do more on climate change. There's already pressure coming from the UK, from China, from a range of other places, but our biggest ally will be um, doing a 180-degree turn on climate change. Yeah, so this is an interesting first day in office for Joe Biden. His speech was very rousing. Um, The call for unity was sort of hard to really find fault with, but... For the 74 million people that voted for Donald Trump, a lot of those things that Biden did in his first day of office will really piss them off and won't really make them feel like uniting. I think, you know, Joe Biden was always going to do a number of the things that he said that he did actually do in his first day. So I think he's just keeping his promise. And a plea to extend JobKeeper payments for Australia's hardest-hit industries has reportedly been rejected by the Treasurer. Yeah, Josh Bidenberg has rebuffed a proposal from the hospitality industry for a so-called HospoKeeper subsidy when the $90 billion program ends on March the 31st. Uh, He says that they've already received an unprecedented amount of support. I know we weren't supposed to use that word in 2021, (laughs) but there it is. Yeah, earlier this week it was revealed that JobSeeker, formerly Newstart, will fall back to $40 a day from April. Uh, And that's an amount advocates have said is way too low. And that debate has been going on for 20 years because it hasn't gone up in real terms since John Howard's time. In the mid-90s, basically, the government has been under pressure, um, Yeah, as you say, for many years pre-COVID to actually raise the amount of Newstart because the cost of living has gone up in that time. Um, and social services groups have argued that it's just not enough to live on $40 a day. And so to see it go back to that amount is interesting. And I wonder whether the Prime Minister is going to cop pressure from the groups that wanted it raised. I suspect he will. Yeah, especially when there's been hundreds of billions of dollars of support flying around for COVID measures. Jan, if you won $730 million in the lotto, would you take the payment up front? Would you trust yourself? Uh, yes. I would absolutely take the payment up front. What's the other option? Well, there's a a bit of a tricky situation for this punter in America who's won this massive jackpot. Basically, you get the 730 if it's paid out over 29 years as an annuity. But if you take it up front, because of the way the tax works, you'd only get 546. Million dollars. Yeah. Right now. So would you take 546 up front or 730 over 30 years? Dude, I'd take like 100 bucks up front. Like, <laughs> are, you, are you kidding me? Yeah. I'd, I'd 100% take it up front. Yes, that's, that's not even a dilemma for me. Would you not? Whoa. Oh, Thomas, really? No, I'd take, I'd take it up front and I'd invest it. You could make that, if you invested it well, you could make that money easily. There I don't know go. what I'd put it into. Bitcoin? I mean, this is something that happened in America though, right? There was a person yeah. who actually... It's only the fourth time the jackpot's gone over $700 million. Oh, my God. And once, what... you're, once you're in the hundreds of millions, it doesn't matter whether you... It just nothing matters anymore, does it? So one person is going to either walk out with that amount or $546 million. 9,000 Teslas that would buy. Oh, my God. My brain is melting. All right, in just a moment, we're talking uh, golf courses and whether they should become public parks. Oh. 
Do you ever drive past a golf course and think, that is a lot of land? <laughs> I always have. I, you do? I, I, as a kid, I rode motorbikes. I was like, I'd love to ride my motorbike in there. Yeah. Do you ever think that maybe this land could be used for something else? I do. But yeah. I'm not a golfer. Well, I mean, you're not alone in thinking that. In Sydney, for example, there are 91 golf courses and they take up 38 square kilometres of open space. Now, this is space that can only be accessed by members or paying guests. So in this episode of The Briefing, we're going to look at how COVID has ignited the debate about turning golf courses into parks. Yeah, this issue was alive before the pandemic. Um, The population in our cities has grown massively since many of these golf courses were zoned. And the number of people playing golf has actually been declining, according to Golf Australia. Five years ago, there was more than a million people playing golf. And in that short time, it's already come down 10%. Yeah, also in Brisbane, and this is before the pandemic, it was already decided that Victoria Park Golf Course would be permanently closed to create the city's biggest park in almost half a century. Yeah, and then the lockdown last year brought this issue into even sharper focus. Uh, Access to green spaces within a short distance of home became absolutely paramount. And there was that really interesting case in inner city Melbourne. Yeah, they opened up the Northcote Golf Club. Well, I should say that they almost had no choice but to open up. <laughs> people were going in the there, golf club. cutting exactly. holes in the fences. Well, because people couldn't travel more than five kilometres outside of their homes and they only had one hour for exercise. So they almost had no choice, really. It was opened up for general use and it was hugely popular. Now that golfers are back, though, the local MP there is calling for the golf course to be reduced from nine holes to six holes and to open up those fairways for general use permanently. Yeah, and there's a similar push in Sydney. The City of Sydney Council reckons that one course in particular, the Moore Park Golf Club, which is the size of 60 soccer fields and situated right in the middle of the city, should be reduced from 18 holes to nine so that half of the golf course can be shared with the public. Yeah, we should note here that the New South Wales Planning Minister, Rob Stokes, has publicly disagreed with that, but it's something that's been on the table for years. And Deputy Lord Mayor of Sydney, Jess Scully, is someone who is leading the push to really rethink the use of golf land. So Jess, tell us why this is a good idea. I think that it's a good idea to reconsider the use of public land every couple of decades or maybe even every 100 years, which is what <laughs> we're considering here with Park Golf Course. This is a public asset. And at the moment, there's 45 hectares of public land that has been cordoned off for the exclusive use of one sport. So what we're asking the Minister for Public Space to do is to open up half of that, 20 hectares, for public use as a parkland, free, open and accessible use. We're we're saying that the 18 holes should be made nine holes, that the driving range should be retained and that people are given access to half of the golf course. So is this the right golf course to really be looking at? Because as um, the New South Wales Planning Minister Rob Stokes said, um, this is one of the few public golf courses in Sydney that's affordable and accessible to people that aren't members of exclusive golf clubs. Wouldn't you be better off looking at some of the bigger private golf courses in densely populated areas like, you know, Rose Bay, for example, in the eastern suburbs? 
Look, I think it's it's fair time to reconsider the use of um, of big pieces of land like this, but this is a publicly held parcel. It's part of Macquarie's original grant of the domain and Moore Park and Centennial Park. And so it's really important that we know that this is our land already that has been diverted to one use. And so that's why we think this is an important piece of land to be reconsidered. And its location is important too. You know, it's, it's about two or three kilometres from the city centre. It's in a place that until recently was home to only a few thousand people, uh, but now is one of the fastest growing parts of the state, of the whole country, in fact. So when this grant was made, the entire population of Sydney was under 700,000 people. And we know that that's changed dramatically in the last 100 years. There's more than 5 million people in Sydney. So it's time to reconsider whether the heart of the city should be home to a golf course of 45 hectares. There are dozens of other golf courses around Sydney. They take up significant amounts of land. Is this something that you'd like to see expanded out of Moore Park? I know that's not necessarily your domain, but in terms of taking back land that is open and green, is it something you'd like to see scaled up? You know, it's something that um, I think we need to be open to having this community community conversation because, uh, you know, when you you land in Sydney, when when we were back in the days of flying, I suppose, you'd land into Sydney, you'd see these glorious stretches of parkland and realise that many of them were gated, were fenced off from the communities that were growing around them. And the COVID pandemic and the lockdown has really revealed how much we need that active public recreation space near to where we live. Uh, So it is time, I think, to reconsider this. We're not the only place in the world that is reconsidering it. Of course, Victoria um, Park Golf Course in in Brisbane is being converted entirely into a parkland. I know there's a number of conversations in Melbourne too about converting golf courses. I think it's an important time in history because we do see that um, active participation in golf is declining, but the use of parkland is increasing. So the city recently surveyed 400 randomly selected people in addition to the public consultation that was conducted in December. These 400 people live within five kilometres of the golf course and 77% of those respondents supported reducing the size of the golf course because 84% of them go to public parklands, you know, once a week at the very least, whereas 81% of them said that they'd never used a golf course. So it's really a question of fairness, of, of who gets to use public land. What about going the other way? You mentioned the 81% who don't use it as a golf course. What if there was public money put behind actually making the sport of golf a little bit more accessible to people? Because it does seem like a sport that is a little bit old school, maybe a little bit elitist. But what if Moore Park could be a thriving golf course that was accessible to everyone and used by so many more people than what it is now for the purpose of golf? You know, I think people are are really capable of choosing the kinds of sports that they <laughs> want to engage in. And, and what we're hearing from people as well is that often it's a question of time. It's become quite common. Look, I'm not a golfer um, and I, I don't know that much about 
golf, but I do know that there's an increase in um, people using driving ranges rather than playing full 18 holes. And and a lot of golf courses actually moving to um, a kind of a quick round nine hole approach. Perhaps it has to do with people's time. How do you see the politics of this playing out? Because I imagine um, the people that would benefit from the idea you're proposing would be very numerous, would be, you know, have quite a lot of democratic power. Um, Do you see this becoming a live political issue um, where we might see massive change? Yes, it's a challenging one because, you know, the the kind of people who love golf tend to be people who, who have positions of power. Uh, and um, it is, of course, really common that if, if you've always had access to the exclusive use of public space, that you're going to want to defend that privilege. I stood on the street corners around um, the Mole Park Golf Course and in the in the developments nearby and the communities nearby, and I spoke to people. And I handed out flyers for for weeks before, um, you know, during this consultation, and the overwhelming majority of people just thought it made sense, but they've never been asked their opinion on it, and they've never even thought that it was a possibility. Have you had much pushback? Has the has the golf lobby sort of? got up to any skullduggery or, you know, you know, has anyone turned up at your house with a golf club or? <laughs> Not yet. Um, look, I, I think I think golfers have been um, organised and mobilised um, and we're still waiting to get the results back from that broader consultation. But no doubt golfers uh, across the country have, um, have got together and had their voices heard. But it's time for everyone else to also have their voices heard too. That was Jess Scully, the Deputy Lord Mayor of the City of Sydney. Um, Let's hear the argument from a golfer's perspective, Jan. Which I imagine would be quite different to what we've just heard from (laughs) Jess Scully. Uh, Rachel Hetherington is a champion Australian golfer. She was a regular on the Women's PGA Tour and got to number seven in the world in the early 2000s. So hugely impressive there. Rachel, welcome. Do you think it's reasonable to rethink how we use this vast amount of space? Oh, it's certainly reasonable. I mean, it's always good to be um, looking at situations that have been the way they have been for a very long time. I think it's really important, though, in this discussion to also look at the benefits that the game of golf brings to the community. And sometimes those benefits are really overlooked because they're not really promoted by the national body, Golf Australia, who is the, you know, the NSO involved in promoting the sport of golf and increasing participation. So some of the great values of golf are really actually um, instilled in a program that's, that actually is, it came out of the States called the First Tee Program. Now, though, there's nine core values in that program, which are wonderful, wonderful values. And, and these values um, such as honesty, integrity, responsibility, um, courtesy, you know, they're wonderful social values as well. And the game of golf actually promotes those. Rachel, there's no doubt um, golf has a lot of virtues and you can you can learn a lot of good values through that game, but you can through any sport. And, and however great golf is, it seems to be declining in popularity while the population around these huge tracts of land grows. So how can you argue that's the fairest use of space when the golf golfing population is in decline and there's so many other people that would would love to use that space well it's interesting um you know there is this sort of argument that it is in decline um however the social rounds of golf have i believe have increased over time so a lot of the you know many times people talk about the decline in golf being the membership of golf clubs and you know to be honest that's understandable people are um 
a short of time now. Some of the golf clubs, particularly in the major cities such as Sydney, um, are very expensive. Um, so, you know, for people that work full time and have families and, and other activities, an annual membership at an elite club or your busier clubs are, are, is really just not financially viable. However, those people are still getting out to play social golf. So it may only be, you know, once a month or once every couple of months, but those social rounds are actually are still very popular and, and golf is available to the broader public. All right, Rachel, thanks so much for joining us this morning. You're welcome. No problems at all. That was the golfer, Rachel Hetherington. And i got to say, Jen, that didn't seem like a really compelling argument to keep so much of this space exclusively for the use of golf. Yeah, look, Rachel did sort of make a point there that I thought was interesting, that maybe there is a failure on behalf of Golf Australia to really promote and grow the sport of golf among communities that wouldn't normally take it up. Yeah, but popularity in any sport waxes and wanes over the years. We then have to think about how much space we devote to it based on the the popularity and this seems like a very rigid use of space and it sounds like it might also be very hard to change. Mm, That's why everyone should just play squash. It doesn't (laughs) take up any room. Or mini golf. (laughs) Or mini golf. All right, that's it, Jan, for our first week of the briefing of 2021. Yeah, we got through week one and thank you so much to everyone who joined us. Yeah, historic week with the US inauguration and um, yeah, the start of what hopefully is a very positive year. Catch you all next week. A podcast one production.